Welcome to the Atomic Hobo. I'm sorry this podcast is a day late. It should have gone out yesterday, but I was just swamped with work. My nuclear war book is due in the spring, and originally that seemed like years and years in the distance, but I'm suddenly aware that it's due in a few months, and so I've entered a terrified and manic state of work, and I'm afraid yesterday I was just swamped. So here we are, a day late. I'm speaking to you on my new fancy microphone. I don't know if you can hear any difference. Let me know if you can. It was my birthday on the 12th of December, the day of the general election. And David, my husband, asked, do you want a boring but useful birthday present? Of course, years ago, when I was young and exciting, I'd have said, of course not. In fact, he wouldn't even have dared suggest a boring present. But because I am now 39... He obviously felt able to offer me a boring but useful present. And so here we are with a new microphone. My birthday present. If that's what he gets me when I'm 39, then God knows what he'll get me when I'm 40. So here we are, podcast a day late, but at least we're here and at least it's on a nice fancy new microphone. Zar Bomba is snoring behind me on the chaise, but I don't know if we can pick him up because this microphone might be so brilliant that... It somehow tunes out puppy snores, but he is in the room with me here. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the kitchen. And the kitchen was a surprisingly important place in nuclear war, and indeed in the Second World War also. In the Second World War, of course, we had rationing, we had food shortages, and so housewives were given uh, an extremely important role. They had to create healthy and enjoyable and morale-boosting meals out of the paltry ingredients that they had. And everything, of course, had to contain dried egg. I actually found a reference today in the Times archive from, I think, 1940, where Lord Woolton, the food minister, suggested we might even be eating powdered meats. If powdered egg wasn't yucky enough, we then had the spectre of powdered meat. Although someone um, quickly clarified that he meant dried or dehydrated meat. It wasn't some kind of powdered meat that you would whip up in a glass with a fork. So our housewives on the home front in the Second World War had a very important role. They had to feed and care for the family on these rations. But of course, at the same time, most of these women would also have been out of the home doing important war work. And that often seemed to be forgotten. We see lots of adverts and recruitment campaigns reminding women, mothers, housewives to become kitchen patriots and do their bit for the war effort by making sure no food is wasted and that they are creative and clever with their meagre rations. At the same time forgetting they were probably working a war job as well. So we're going to go back to the Second World War and see what this call was for women to be kitchen patriots and to fight on the kitchen front. And then we'll jump forward to the Cold War and see how that message survived or was changed to meet the nuclear threat. Of course, in the Cold War, women weren't being told to make nice healthy meals out of dried egg. They were told, make sure your fallout room is stocked with 14-day supply of tinned food and water. 
not so much being a kitchen patriot, but being a kind of squirrel or hamster and tucking all the food away for the awful thermonuclear holocaust that's about to fall in your head. The least you can do is have some beans and chicken soup to meet that holocaust. So let's go back and look at what our kitchen patriots were doing in the Second World War. So, rationing. It was introduced in Britain in 1940 and one of the main reasons was to free up space on cargo ships which were coming into Britain. It was hard enough to get ships through, so it was best that when they arrived they were loaded with absolute essentials. Britain at this time was importing 90% of her cereals, for example. So, if we could stop needing so much cereal we could free up space on those ships. But we all need cereal to make bread, don't we? And aren't we just crazy for our bread here in Britain? Breakfast just isn't right without hot toast. Although, actually, I prefer my toast cold. I think that's a legacy of being in holiday in Blackpool and being served breakfast at the tables of all these little tiny backstreet B&Bs where you get your toast sliced into two triangles on a little toast rack But by the time the landlady brings it out to your table, it's actually cold. But when you spread your nice squishy butter on it, it sits nicely on the surface. It doesn't melt in. It sits on the surface and you get a nice bite from your toast. So yes, I like cold toast because of Blackpool. But nonetheless, toast is essential to breakfast. I agree with Ricky Gervais when he discussed continental breakfasts on his podcast And he's disgusted. He says, why on earth would you order a continental breakfast in a hotel when you could have a full English with a big stack of toast on the side? So with rationing came campaigns to push us to other types of food. To replace bread, the government went crazy for potatoes. Britain produces loads of them, they cried. So eat potatoes, go nuts, have as many as you want. The Times in January 1943 had an article about this very topic, about how important it is that we ditch bread and replace it with potatoes. I'll read it to you, it's quite funny. It says here, The potato is often in our minds and often in our mouths, but, as Lord Wilson again told us on Tuesday, should be in both places even more frequently. In all the 450 years of its history, The apple of the earth has never been of such importance to the people of these islands. There is an abundance of potatoes. Let the sky rain potatoes, said Falstaff and the Merry Wives, and the observer at the greengrocers can almost imagine that nature, in her benevolence, has taken him at his word. With bread, the case is very different. Every day, Men give their lives to bring wheat to this country. Nibbling at bread, as Lord Wilton has said, is nibbling at the very soles of ships. There is a limit, a physical and perhaps a psychological limit, to the amount of potatoes that a patriotic citizen can consume at a sitting. And on the whole, housewives are doing their best to fit potatoes into their daily menu. 
Housewives, in fact, are probably using more ingenuity than restaurant chefs in serving up the old friend in a new guise. Much depends on the art of cookery, an art which the English have been slow to relearn. But this article, yes, encourages us to look afresh at the potato, to learn cookery skills, to see all the wonderful, exciting things we can do with potatoes. They don't just have to be peeled and dropped in a pan of boiling water. In fact, you were told not to peel your potatoes. You were told to use the skin, use everything, don't waste anything. So we had the home front during the war, but we also had within that the kitchen front. Lord Wilton, the food minister, said that It was a great burden on women to play their part, to cook properly, and by doing so they freed up space on the ships and helped keep their families fighting fit. He was so um, fixed in that opinion that he said in 1942, any woman who helps in this work is to me the modern Helen of Troy. And the Times called for efficiency on the kitchen front saying every housewife has to prepare 1,000 meals in a year and therefore has an important part to play in working for victory. Moreover, household peace and harmony between the sexes was much assisted by efficiency on the kitchen front. Face powder might catch a man, but it took baking powder to hold him. So there is a touch of humour, of merriment in these articles and campaigns, They're not in any way forbidding and stern. In fact, some of them were illustrated with silly cartoon characters like um, Dr Carrots and Potato Pete. If the ingredients a woman had to work with were poor and bland, the government would at least portray cooking as vital, important and a wartime challenge. It was fun. Be a kitchen patriot. meet again don't know when, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Now, of course, nothing drains the fun out of life more than nuclear war. And so when we reach the Cold War, there are similar instructions and campaigns and advice to carefully acquire food, what to do with the food, how to save it, how to stockpile it, how to prepare it. But there's certainly no fun involved in those campaigns. All the joy, all the challenge has gone out of it and it's now simply a matter of clinging on by your fingertips to some kind of survival. You will need to have by you a reserve of tinned and other non-perishable food. This should be enough to feed the whole household and possibly some extra mouths for at least a fortnight. Wrap up all your food, except for tin stuffs, and keep it in closed cabinets or cupboards. Food is not harmed by fallout radiation, but anything that has had fallout dust on it will be contaminated and made dangerous to eat. Get your food, wrap it, seal it, store it, protect it, conceal it, because the poison is coming. The bomb will drop and the fallout dust is here. The advice has stopped being cheery and encouraging and is now a series of grim, stern instructions. The clip you heard there is from a civil defence bulletin 
And I've covered those films in detail in the previous podcast episode called Advising the Householder. These bulletins formed a series of very blunt and joyless black and white films which were made for civil defence workers in the 1960s. And it told them what info they should pass on to the public if the time came. I've called the clip joyless, stern, grim, but there is a tiny little ray of light in it, and that is the reference to some extra mouths. The film advises the housewife to get enough food in to feed herself, the husband and the children and the pets for 14 days. That's until the fallout has decreased. But she's also advised to get enough in to feed some extra mouths. That implies that she's maybe going to give shelter to a neighbour or a friend or maybe even a stranger who's been caught far from home when the siren sounds. Now that is very generous, very benevolent. Opening your fallout shelter to some extra mouths, sharing what you have, sharing your hoarded rations with a stranger. Very nice and very absent from the videos which came later, Protect and Survive. Those films came out in the early 80s. Well, they didn't come out. They were made but never broadcast on TV, but we became aware of them thanks to Panorama, which leaked them to the public. Protect and Survive had no such reference to sharing what you had with other mouths, with strangers, with friends, with neighbours. So by the early 80s, when Protect and Survive came out, that last little chink of light, the last little shaky bridge connecting the Cold War with the more generous landscape of the Second World War home front, had been burned By the time Protect and Survive came around, there was no hint at all that you might help out a stranger. Fallout dust gives off dangerous radiation. It cannot be seen or felt. It has no smell. Anybody staying within reach of fallout for too long can fall ill or die. So you must keep away from fallout until it is safe. And this may mean staying in your fallout room for up to 14 days. Prepare yourself for this now by storing all the things you need. Put them in your fallout room or stacked up within easy reach close by. Here is a list of the most important things you will need. Drinking water. Food mostly in tins. Portable radio and spare batteries. Tin opener, bottle opener, some cutlery and crockery. Warm clothing. And now here is a list of some things which will make living in your fallout room much more comfortable. Bedding, sleeping bags, Portable stove and fuel. Saucepans for boiling water and cooking. 
torches with spare bulbs and batteries, candles, matches. Table and chairs. Toilet articles, soap, toilet rolls. Change of clothing. First aid kit, household medicines and prescribed medicines. Box of dry sand, cloths or tissues for wiping plates and utensils. Notebook and pencil for messages. Brushes, shovel and cleaning materials, rubber or plastic gloves. Toys for children, books and magazines to pass the time. Clock and calendar. Finally, don't forget your booklet, Protect and Survive. It tells you how to make your home and family as safe as possible. All the items we've just told you about are listed in it. Now, where is the kindness in that video? Where is the mention of community, of looking out for others? Um, it's gone. There's nothing. Gradually, as the Cold War progresses, talk of community, of helping others, vanishes. And instead, the advice zooms in on the family, the household, quite appropriately, the, what we call the nuclear family. It's all about hunkering down in your house, building your refuge, stocking your fallout room and barricading yourself in. I am not a sentimental person, I hope, but I can't help comparing the harshness of Protect and Survive with the kinder elements of public information back in the Second World War and being aware of the huge departure from decency and community in it. Now, of course, that's the way it has to be, there is no point comparing nuclear war with the conventional war of the Second World War. They are two completely different things. In fact, I've just finished writing the NHS chapter of my book and I talk about the BMA, the British Medical Association. Uh, for those who aren't aware, that's the trade union for doctors, but it's a very august and respected institution in, the, in Britain. They issued a report in the 1980s about what nuclear war would do to not just the NHS but the country as a whole and one of their main, they were very critical as you can imagine of the government's plans for surviving nuclear war but their main criticism was that the government seemed incredibly naive. They seemed to think that nuclear war was simply going to be conventional war with a bit extra horror thrown in the BMA and the report made it clear that nuclear war is nothing like conventional war. You can't take the lessons of the Second World War and stretch and mould and pull them to cover nuclear war. The two things are completely different and there is no point comparing them. So perhaps I am a sentimental person because I can't help, as I just said, comparing Protect and Survive with talk of... Dr. Carrot and Potato Pete and the jolly atmosphere or the cheering thread which seems to run through home front public information advice. 
when it comes to protections of hive, that is all gone. It is stripped bare. It is down to the bones. And there's certainly no mention of cheerfulness, of optimism, of looking out for your friends and neighbours, or even strangers, of course. By the time we reach the 1980s, that's all gone. I can't help feeling that is quite sad. And so, yes, I must, in fact, be a sentimental person. Okay, that's us for this week. Um, If you want to keep in touch with how my book is going, you can follow me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. Currently it's going (laughs) with a pinch of terror. But the good thing about being panicked and frightened is that I work at a very fast pace. So things are getting done. Uh, So yes, get me on Twitter. You can also get me on Facebook under the title Nuclear Britain. Or you can check out my my website at juliemcdowell.com. Remember, if you like my nuclear work and you want to support it, you can become a patron. If you want to do that, take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. I thank everyone who contributes to my patron. And this week, let me thank the people who pay at the greatest hobo level. That's the top level. My greatest hobos are Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lissy D and Eric. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next week with another podcast. <laughs>